Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Since I was a little girl, like 11, 12-year-old, I just loved physics. It was my first love. And in hindsight, what happened is I think I loved that audacious quest to the unknown mystery of the universe. Then enlightened and enamored, I realized my own audacious question that I love the most is, what is intelligence? What makes intelligence? How do we build intelligent machines? And that shift in the middle of end of my college year was how I discovered AI. That's Fei-Fei Li. She's often called, somewhat to her embarrassment, the godmother of AI. My conversation with her is the first of three special episodes of Clear and Vivid, exploring the dramatic impact that artificial intelligence has had in the last 12 months since chatbots such as ChatGPT burst on the scene. Dr. Lee has written a wonderful book recounting her work laying the foundation for those chatbots some 15 years ago. But the book called The Worlds I See is also a vivid portrayal of her own personal journey from her childhood in China through a bold and risky gamble with her career to her present concern that AI should help humanity, not destroy it. Thank you so much for doing this with me. I'm almost guilty talking to you for these few minutes because I feel like I'm stealing you away from making a future for all of us. Oh, thank you. No, no, no. I, I, I think part of the future is uh, um, communicating with the public. <laughs> yeah, well, and you certainly do a great job in your book. It's such a vivid picture of the people in your life who have given you the foundation for so many things that you do that affect all of our lives. You like the book? Very much, very Aww, much. Congratulations. Thank you. I was so interested in your stories about your life in China where you were born. And I don't know if it was as important a moment to you, but it would have been to me, that moment where you were doing so well in school. And then one day the teacher said at the end of the day, the boys should stay and the girls are free to go now. And you lingered outside the door to listen to what was going on. What what did the teacher say? Well, yeah, we have to contextualize. There is still part of the world that... uh, the, the roles of gender and the deep history is still, you know, not the way we see it uh, here. 
And the teacher, I'm pretty sure she was coming from a not intentionally trying to hurt anybody, but she wanted the boys to be better, and she wanted to encourage the boys. And the way she encouraged them is to say what she probably believed in, which is that the boys will have more potential. The boys will likely to be smarter, and、uh, and、uh, you know, as a little girl who was a little feisty. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, it didn't rub me well. It wasn't great for 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 me to hear. <laughs> I picture myself being the the person outside the door listening to that, and a woman at that telling the boys, "You're smarter than girls biologically. I expect more from you, but don't worry. In a few years during adolescence, they'll get stupider." <laughs> I mean, it's crushing. And what's wonderful was you didn't get crushed. You you almost took it as a challenge, maybe. Well, that's because of the people around me, and、um, you know, first of all, I, I'm not trying to paint an entire world with that message, right? This is one teacher. I, I, it is, it is rooted in certain aspect of the culture, but in the meantime, my local culture, my family, I was the the firstborn grandkid, and I was a girl, but I was so supported by my parents and by my grandparents that.、Um, I didn't feel that crushing,、um, you know,、um, lack of confidence in me by them, and、uh, so as a kid, I needed just a few people who supported me and、mm. trusted me, and I think that's probably true to a lot of us. We just need a few people who loved us so unconditionally. To move to the United States. When you were fifteen, right? Yes. That must have been a really difficult experience to live through, because you had few words in English, as I understand. Right, but very, very little, if any. It was challenging, but it was also character building. I, someone just asked me this question. Let's guess counterfactually if I didn't leave the home country, what would happen? And and I. I think I have to say that experience helped me to become so much more resilient, and also be aware of what one had to do in face of you know challenges. That 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 really made me who I am today. <laughs> and you had your math teacher in New Jersey, yes, who was so supportive and continued throughout your life to be supportive. Yeah, I mean, this is why the book is、uh, also a tribute to those people like him, Bob Sabella. He is, by all measures, such a common public high school teacher in our country. He is not unique, yet he's so special. He's so he embodies the value that this new country、uh, instilled in me. That kind of Um, compassion, the kind of respect, the kind of tolerance, the kind of generosity that forever, you know, just lifted me, and I'm so grateful for that. And I think of that moment, the little girl standing outside the door, hearing something that could have been discouraging, and only a few years later, 
you get a full scholarship to Princeton University. That's a testament to your ability to knock yourself out learning. I did work hard, but it's hard for me to just give credit to myself. The, the book is a love letter to the, to the people who have supported me. Once you were launched in this pursuit of science, what turned you on to AI? Yeah, so, Alan, that's a great question. So it really started with physics. I was just, I don't know, like since I was a little girl, like 11, 12-year-old, I just loved physics. It was my first love. And in hindsight, what happened is I think I loved that audacious quest to the unknown mystery of the universe. Like physics allows you to ask the craziest questions, Mm. like beginning of space-time, boundary of the universe, the smallest particle of matter. And then in the middle of Princeton physics, I discovered even the physicists themselves, like Albert Einstein and Erwin Schrodinger, they turned their attention somewhat to an equally audacious question. But that's not a physics question. It's about life. And I became so enlightened and enamored, I realized my own audacious question that I love the most is, what is intelligence? What makes intelligence? How do we build intelligent machines? And that shift in the middle of, end of my college year was how I discovered AI. And I didn't know we were in the AI winter at all. I, I, I had no idea. I didn't care. I, it doesn't matter if it's winter or spring. It was summer for me because it's just so fascinating. We ought to explain for those who haven't come across that term that you mean that AI has had times in our history when it's bloomed and when people have got discouraged and dropped an interest in it, at least as far as the public is concerned. But yeah. you, were, you, were, you were talking about, in a talk I saw you give, about how you were living in a town in New Jersey while 30 miles away... Was Bell Labs. Yeah, where, where yes. Lacoon, is that who was... developing neural networks. Yep, yep. He and many scientists, I had no idea that uh, when I landed in America, it was the moment that AI was, you know, is experiencing that downturn, yet computer scientists like Yan Lekun were working on their neural network just 30 miles away from my home, American home. (laughs) So... How did you get from that to concentrating on images? I think I'm naturally a visual person because even in my early childhood, my dad takes me to these natural excursions and we look at butterflies, we draw the pictures of mountains, and there is this fascination of seeing. I find that understanding visual intelligence to be the most fascinating aspect of intelligence And I just got into vision. I've heard you say that vision is more than just a sense, that it's an experience. Vision is intelligence. Vision is experience. Vision is uh, understanding. And vision is is planning. Vision is decision-making. Vision is socialization. 
vision is a very cornerstone piece of intelligence itself. Well, at one point, your fascination with images got you to start to work with ImageNet, which I'd like to have you help me understand a little better. It's important to understand it because I think that's the, that's the project that made people call you the godmother of artificial intelligence as we know it today. It seemed to have been a big... I know you don't want to, you don't want to congratulate yourself too much, but I've heard that said about you, and I'm trying to figure out in what way was it a milestone? Right. I think it's best explained with actually today's breakthrough in, say, ChatGPT, right? Why is, is, are we seeing the AI breakthrough? Because we see powerful algorithms trained on a vast amount of data, the data of the internet, and that give us such powerful breakthroughs. But this concept of neural network trained on large data was not existent before 2012, basically, because AI was still going through a phase that we don't know what's the best path to make powerful AI. But two things converged. One is there is a group of people like Professor Jeff Hinton who are continue to, continuing to explore neural network. But there is another ingredient, another part of the puzzle is big data, because at that time, nobody thought big data would power AI. And that's where ImageNet came to play the pivotal role, is that my students and I recognized the power of data. We hypothesized, um, I guess before most people, that AI will have a paradigm shift if we power it with internet scale, giant amount of data. It's it's a data-centric, data-first um, approach. And because of that, we were working on vision. So we want to make the biggest visual data set. And in order to make the biggest visual data set, we had this crazy idea of downloading almost all the pictures we can get on the internet back in 2007, and organize it, curate it, catalog it in its completeness in terms of visual objects. And that's when we made, after three years, between 2007 to 2009, we made a data set of 15 million images across 22,000 categories. And that's out of cleaning up a billion images. And... Um, that's what ImageNet was. ImageNet brought the data-first approach to AI. It also implicitly showed the AI world an important North Star problem to work on, which is object recognition. And also this commitment to big data was a, a big intellectual jump because putting together that kind of scale of big data was was tough. It was a gamble. It was uh, career risking. So before one does it, it's hard to know if we should do it. That's what we had to do. And I think you said that what inspired you a great deal in your progress was what you call Biederman's number. Yes. What's the importance of Biederman's number? 
the importance of Biederman's number is he put a number on the size of the visual intelligence. Like, how? What is a number to define visual intelligence? And that is really a hard question. It's almost like asking you how many stars are out there, and、um, and. For someone like me who was trying to、um, really crack the problem of visual intelligence, I was looking for a clue to tell me what is the scale and scope of the problem. I don't. If we if we just solve four objects, is that enough? If we solve twenty objects, is it enough? If we solve a hundred objects, is it enough? Nobody knows the answer. But when I discover the Biederman number, I feel like I discovered a a really important、um, conjecture that no one was noticing, which is tens of thousands of categories. And Biederman put it as thirty thousand category. And once I got that number, I feel like I had a clue about the size of this problem. So, what do you mean by categories?、Um, categories are the natural way that humans conceptualize objects. We tend to conceptualize them as German shepherds, microwave, you know,、um, a, a sport car. You know, of course, sometimes we think about my German shepherd, your microwave, but in general, that. Classification of visual concept is a fundamental、uh, visual intelligence、uh, problem that humans have worked on and solved, and it's very foundational to our visual intelligence. So, if you collect a great number of pictures under the category of dog, and a great number of pictures under the category of cat, the machine is able to sort through that. And put a name on it when it sees a picture. Yes, and and mind you, there are hundreds of dog species. So in ImageNet, it's not just dog. We actually had hundreds of different dog: terrier, German Shepherd, corgi. We have even different kinds of corgis. So it's a lot more than just dog versus cats. <laughs> right, right. So you've got subcategories as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, a lot. Most of ImageNet is the subcategories, right? Right.、Mm. Like I said, hundreds of dogs,、uh, hundreds and hundreds of birds and cats, and you know,、uh, many different kind of cars, the, the the buildings, trees, flowers. You know, it's a, it's a very very vast catalog of the visual world. When you got inspired by Biederman's number, you had been working up until then on a, on 101 categories, which was hard work and took a long time. What made you think that you could possibly get tens of thousands of categories and catalog them? What gave you the idea that you could do it? I would like to say delusion. <laughs> <laughs> It was like a kid who went on a treasure hunt and found a clue to the biggest question mystery, and no one else was finding that clue. I was so excited, and then I got so shocked by myself. It's like it's so much bigger, and I have no idea how to do it. But I kept it in the back of my mind because it was I was getting obsessed with that 
that scale, and I was like, what to do? And then serendipitously, a couple of years later, when I was at Princeton campus and heard linguists were cataloging words, they were not thinking about the visual world, they were not thinking about AI, but they were just making knowledge taxonomy of words. And then when, when I made that connection between Biederman's number, which is visual concepts, and knowledge taxonomy, I think it was a moment where I felt so sure that this is important enough, I've got to do it. I just kind of forgot about how hard it would be. <laughs> I kind of felt I just needed to do it. I don't know how, but it, 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 if I don't do it, it, I cannot sleep. I, you know, so 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 that was that kind of moment, and um, and that's that's how I started the image that project. And it took a few years of struggle and it also a few years realizing I was so delusionally um, fearless. <laughs> <laughs> How do you make a decision like that? What goes into it when you know you're betting your own career, your student's career? How do you weigh the factors of risk against the chance that it will work? See, I feel like, Alan, you don't, you can't, because if you do, you wouldn't do it. <laughs> you, so, you, so you go you, with your gut? You go with that scientific conviction. It, it, it is gut. At the, at the end of the day, it has to go to the gut level, but it wasn't an irrational. It's not like it came up randomly. Yeah, right. It's the scientific conviction, and, and I'm seeing that. And I have to make it happen. And I can be wrong. Honestly, I didn't spend too much time thinking about what happens if I'm wrong. I guess I can always do another dry cleaner shop. But. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a reference to a part of your life that was so interesting. Yeah. While you were, was it while you were getting your PhD? Or what, what were you working Under, on? My entire undergrad at Princeton and the first three years of my PhD. So it's three years altogether. I was running the family dry cleaner shop business. Which you set up, and on, and on weekends, yeah. every weekend you'd, you'd work with starch or no starch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, there's more, more than that. I'm an expert in dry cleaning. <laughs> 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 When we come back from our break, Fei-Fei Lee tells me how a question from her mother, who was ill in a hospital bed at the time, helped Fei-Fei Lee determine her present passion, which is to ensure that AI develops in what she calls a human-centered way. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone 
or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. Clover gives you the power to run a smarter, faster restaurant. See everything in real time with the kitchen display system. Streamline takeout and delivery with online ordering. With the right tech, quick service is getting even quicker. Clover, accept payments, run your business, and sell more. For a limited time only, visit Clover.com to get a $450 statement credit on qualified hardware purchases. That's www.clover.com. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Fei-Fei Lee. She tells a story in her book about how her mother, who was ill in a hospital at the time, asked a question about how AI could help ordinary people. And that sparked Fei-Fei Lee to help create the Institute for Human-Centered AI at Stanford University. Of course, you know, when I wrote, wrote that story in the book, I gave, I highlighted that moment. But in reality, I think that moment combined with the moment in history, including my career, what I was seeing in Silicon Valley, my experience in, um, in industry on my sabbatical, as well as my mother taking care of my mother and hearing her reflection of all this combined and compelled me to re-examine the technology I was making, re-examine my role in this technology. And that's where I realized AI has come of age in a more profound way than what I knew when I was entering AI. We now have a technology that can actually make real human impact, good, bad, and ugly. And it's so important we create a a human-centered framework so that we can continue to develop this and deploy this and govern this in a human-centered way. What were you seeing in the technology movement that spurred you to think like this? So, well, first of all, like I have had decades of experience taking care of my parents, ailing mom. And I think it's a very grounding experience. I, I know that I don't have the profile of AI leader. I'm not a Silicon Valley bro. I'm a woman, I'm an immigrant, I'm a caretaker. But that grounded me in humanity. It grounded me with humility and understanding of human dignity, human self-respect, human compassion. And I wanted to see technology helping humans. In the meantime, I was at Google and I was very fortunate 
to be leading Google's cloud units, AI and machine learning. And there I learned this technology is going to is impacting all industries. We were literally working with Japanese cucumber farmers hmm. all the way to Fortune 5 companies and every sector from healthcare to finance to energy to entertainment to e-commerce. And seeing that sweeping impact made me realize, wow, this is just the beginning. We really need to, we really need to recognize the responsibility of this technology, rubber hitting the road. And we need to think deeply about human impact at that point. So what are some of the things that the Institute for Human-Centered AI does? What, what, what are you working on? So we work on three things. Research, human-centered research, human-centered AI education, and human-centered AI policy. So in research, we are the leading institute at Stanford as well as in the academia world that gives grants and, and build interdisciplinary uh, AI research. For example, in HAI, we have Digital Economy Lab that studies uh, AI's economic impact. We have Center for Foundation Models that study the large language models and AI uh, and, and its impact. We have neuroscience projects that look at um, how we can combine brain science and AI. So we have a lot of um, interdisciplinary research. In education, we put a lot of focus on baking ethical framework into computer science curriculum. We put a lot of uh, emphasis on educating uh, civil society, like congressional staffers, like journalists, like business leaders, and create the ecosystem of knowledge. And then in policy, we put a lot of emphasis on thought leadership and public discourse forum of discussing AI's policy implication and also advocating for important policy changes. For example, public sector investment of AI. I get the impression that there's a big effort on your part to make sure that the motivation for working in, on AI and developing AI further is that it benefit humanity. Yes. Because there's a tendency, I guess, for AI to be, to be considered something that competes with humans rather than assisting humans. Yeah, this really bothers me because I think we need to be very clear what our relationship with tools are. AI is a piece of tool. It's a very powerful piece of tool. And humanity has had its struggle with the, the, the relationship between us and the tool. But it's important to recognize that we should have the narrative. We should have the agency in responsibly creating and using and governing the tool. So this thing about let AI compete with us or let AI take care of us or let AI control us is just not how I see this technology. It's, it's wrong to give agency to AI. It's important we actually take that agency. So people like me, I'm a technologist, I should feel responsible for what I build. And uh, in the meantime, I, I hope that business leaders also 
feel responsible. I feel. I hope civil society feels responsible. We we have to recognize that agency and responsibility. You seem to put a lot of emphasis on enabling the people who create bigger and better AIs to do it with a, a nod, more than a nod, but a recognition of the importance of serving people. Is that catching hold in time to, to make it before it accelerates out of our control? You tell me, Alan. I, I, I'm definitely hearing my own voices more than anybody's. <laughs> 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 I, I do feel I'm on this uphill battle of trying to communicate AI in a responsible way. I feel sometimes our airwaves is um, filled with the sense of AI is going to dominate us. AI is going to do things to us. We are screwed because AI is going to blah, blah, blah. And I really want to just stand on top of a mountain and, 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 and shout that let's recognize AI is a tool we collectively made and we'll need to collectively apply and govern. So it truly is our own responsibility to do this right, not AI's. Before we end our conversation, I wanted to ask you that I, I saw in the book repeatedly the importance to this whole field of people who were born outside the United States, the value of immigrants to our country in general, but certainly to this field. And I think your, uh, your nonprofit organization of AI for All is working on that. Well, a repeated theme in my book is the recognition of people of all walks of life. Um, that includes people of different gender. It includes people of all kind of countries' origins. You know, I think most of people who have helped me um, come from another country. And I also believe that if we want to make this technology human-centered, we have to recognize the human diversity of, you know, the makers of this technology as well as who is going to use and deploy it. So with that mindset, I did start, co-founded this nonprofit called AI for All that focuses on K-12 education of AI and to try to lift tomorrow's leaders from all walks of life, from all backgrounds, whether you're in rural America or if you're inner city America, or if you are a young woman, or if you're people of different uh, color and different backgrounds. So, so that's the goal. Um, but the bottom line is, if AI is going to change all of us tomorrow, because it's going to impact our world, I want to make sure the people who are changing AI represent all of us. That's well said. And in the process, you're creating an unknown number of Fei Fei Lee's that'll that'll get us there. Yeah. I wish I had more time to talk with you. It's <laughs> it, I have so many I have hours of things to ask you about and learn from. But before we end every show, we have seven quick questions. Sure. Okay. Of all the things there are to understand, 
What do you wish you really understood? Of all the things in the world? Of all the things, not necessarily related to your work, but could be, whatever it is. My children. <laughs> it reminds me of my good friend Steve Strogatz, the mathematician, who said he, he wished he understood his dog, Murray. But you, <laughs> yours, is, yours is even more useful. Well, I don't have a puppy, so... <laughs> <laughs> so, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? That's a great question. I want to say it depends on who they are, but I guess I will start by I respectfully disagree. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go to the next one. What, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? The strangest question. Oh, I got one that's good. What is the favorite category in ImageNet? Oh, that's interesting. What is the favorite? <laughs> is there one? It is so hard to answer. Um, I would say I constantly take a lot of joy in browsing the pictures of the category of wombats. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, wait a second. Why, why is that? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I love wombats, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just not only the strangest question, it's the strangest answer I ever got. Okay, I'm glad you think that way. <laughs> uh, how do you handle a compulsive talker? I stay silent. <laughs> and you stay put. Well, it depends. If I'm rushing somewhere else, I I need to extract extract myself. <laughs> okay, let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know, never met before. How do you begin a really genuine conversation? I actually love those opportunities because it's just such a curious way of learning. I, I guess I would ask, uh, what do you feel so excited about these days? Mm. Yeah, great. Get right to the emotion. What gives you confidence? Humanity. This is why, as an AI scientist, I find it strangely I use the word human so much these days because humanity is flawed, I'm going to admit it. But we're also incredibly resilient our arc of history, with all its ups and downs, is bent towards goodness. At least we want to. I believe in Dr. King's, you know, the arc of history is bent towards justice. It's not just justice. It's, uh, it's for me, it's, uh, you know, there's goodness in humans. So I do believe in humanity. I have confidence in humanity. Doesn't mean I have confidence in every single individual. <laughs> <laughs> that opens up a whole other conversation. We'll get to some sometime when we meet. Last question. What book changed your life? Great question. Oh, so many, right? Um, you know, the nerdy one, I would say Feynman Lectures. <laughs> ah, yeah. That's great. <laughs> I I do wish we could talk longer. You you you're an extraordinary person, and thank you, thank it's you. It's so good we have you on the planet. <laughs> thank you. Like I said, I think this moment 
communicating AI is part of my work because I think humanity so need honesty and authenticity in talking about AI. I worry that if we don't, if we're not honest about talking about AI, we're we're not doing justice to to the society, to the, mm-hmm. to the to our community. And and being honest involves both talking about the great benefits that will probably come, and also the the, da- and, the dangers, yeah, the, the harm exactly. that could come. And you don't want to emphasize one to the disadvantage of the other. Right, and you don't want to be hyperbolic. You want right. to be nuanced and thoughtful, which means you're no fun for news. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the disaster gets the headline. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Faye. Thank Faye. you, I appreciate Alan. It. Thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alder Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Fei-Fei Lee is the inaugural Sequoia professor in the Computer Science Department at Stanford University and co-director of Stanford's Human-Centered AI Institute. During her sabbatical from Stanford from January 2017 to September 2018, she was vice president at Google and served as chief scientist at Google Cloud. Her development of ImageNet ushered in the age of big data in AI, laying the foundation for chatbots like ChatGPT and its successors. Her wonderful book is The Worlds I See, Curiosity, Exploration, and Discovery at the Dawn of AI. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio, Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Eric Schmidt. Being the CEO of Google from 2001 to 2011, followed by four years as Google's executive chairman, has given him a bird's-eye view of the development of AI. He has many concerns about the harm that AI can cause. He's especially worried about AI-generated deep fakes. But he also sees benefits, benefits that today we can scarcely imagine. For instance... While chatbots work by predicting the next word. There are many, many examples where predicting the next word is also a technique that you can use to predict the next gene, the next protein. And it uses the same principles. So what does this mean? How about better batteries? How about more efficient energy distribution? How about better carbon management? Climate change alone, one of the greatest dangers to humanity in the long run, will be materially improved by this. Plastics, uh, paint, uh, pollutants of one kind or another 
we're going to look back on this period and say we were so ignorant because we were using such simple materials, components, and so forth in our built existence. And this is how progress goes on. It's great. And all of these are happening at a speed that is incomprehensibly fast compared to what it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Eric Schmidt on the good as well as the bad and ugly of AI. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness is built to take you further off the beaten path. It has 9.5 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive, plus off-road wheels, rugged all-terrain tires, and advanced dual-function X-Mode to help you get through deep snow, gravel, and mud. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. Adventure elevated. Visit Subaru.com wilderness to explore the family of rugged Subaru Wilderness models. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University, that's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.